the church is the most important institution in the world. There is no other institution or organization that is more significant, influential, or precious than the church. The church is the only institution that Jesus himself established. It is the only institution for which Jesus gave his life. And the church is the only institution that will outlast the bounds of time and space, carrying over into eternity. The Bible calls the church the manifold wisdom of God, the bride of Christ, the people of God, the body of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25-27 tell us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. All these statements and descriptions are about the church. Jesus loved and died for the church. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You could scarcely imagine a loftier view, a higher view of the church than what we find in the New Testament. But if we're honest, most of us are probably at least a little confused about what exactly the church is. And if we're really honest, some of you might not even be sure that church is even a good thing. There might be a big gap right now between how you feel about church and all of these powerful high statements that I've just made about it. You might be thinking, what are you talking about? Right? I... I've been in church for a long time, and to be honest with you, it's disappointed me. It's hurt me. It's left me wounded and bruised, and I'm not even sure how much patience I have left for the church. That might be where you are. And I know. I've been hurt too. I, I'm a, I was a church kid, right? I grew up in church. I've been in church all my life. There's not been a season of my life where I, like, left an active involvement in the church. The church has been a part of my life from day one. And believe me, I've got scars too. I've got wounds too. And some of them have cut very deeply and still hang with me. And I have to try to shake them. The church is not perfect. It's not easy. But I still agree with Bill Hybels, the Chicago pastor, when he called the local church the hope of the world. And I hope to show you in this message why I think that. And I hope that when we're finished, even maybe with this series of messages, that you just might think that too. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're not going to spend a long time in this passage, but I do want to start here. Ephesians chapter 2, which is in the New Testament, flip past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Past Acts, and then a little bit in there, and you'll find Ephesians chapter 2. What we're going to do in today's message is just answer a couple questions. The first question is just basically, what is the church? What is the church? Secondly, and this is where we'll spend more of the time, we want to answer the question, what makes a church a church? What is it that defines a church as that? 
and not something else, not a civic club, not just a group of friends? What makes a church a church? And then finally, briefly, we'll answer the question, what, what are the next steps for Imprint Community Church in that journey, the journey that we're on? So before we read Ephesians 2, the first thing I want you to, to notice is that when I'm speaking of the church, I want you to notice the word the, the church, the church. It is a singular noun, the church. And so in this sense, we're talking about what we might call the big C church, the big C church, the universal church. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'll read from 11 down through verse 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is the Jews regarded them as, as outside because they were not uh, a part of the circumcised family of Israel, right? Which is made by flesh, uh, made in the hands, excuse me, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, both being Jewish people and Gentiles, which is everybody else, everyone who's not Jewish, right? He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's a lot there and we're not going to see much of it. We're not going to spend much time in it. What I want you to see is that what God is doing in Christ is creating for himself a people. One people. And that is the church. When Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, this is who he's talking about. He's talking about this people that he is creating by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and calling together people who had nothing to do with one another. And in fact, the Jews would have regarded themselves as heirs of the promise and the covenants and the word of God, and they were the special people of God. And God is now saying, everybody else who was far off, I've now brought near through Christ. And he preached the very same peace to those who were far and to those who are near, the Gentiles and the Jews, because we have access in the same Lord. One spirit, one faith, one body, all right? And he uses a few images there to describe the church. Uh, He talks about us being members of the same body. He talks about us being citizens, fellow citizens with the saints. 
So there's a, a, a heavenly kind of kingdom there that we're a part of as the church. He talks about being members of God's household and that we're being built into a temple for God to dwell in. So the church, bottom line, most basic answer is the church is the people of God, redeemed by Jesus Christ. The people of God. So the church is not a place. The church is not a program. The church is a people. That's the first and most fundamental thing to see about that. And when Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, he didn't say, I will build my churches. He said, I will build this one people that I am redeeming and setting apart for God. That's what he meant. All people in all places at all times who have trusted in Jesus for salvation are a part of this church. Capital C Church. Universal Church. Across the globe and across the ages, all those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation are a part of that universal church. And so that is true of you if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. Even if you were never a member of a local church, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in him for your salvation, you are a member of the church universal. You are united to a global and eternal body through your faith in Christ. But that's not where I want, that's not where our focus is for this series of messages. Our series title is Becoming the Church, and in that sense, it's not the big C church that I'm talking about. It's the little C church. So let's turn our attention to what that is and what I mean by that. Little C church. So since the days of Jesus and the apostles, the global body of Christ, Christians all over the world, have organized themselves into smaller groups in particular locations. These smaller groups of Christians are called local churches. You won't see that phrase particularly in the New Testament, but it's come to be how we identify an expression of the body of Christ in a location, a local church. Church in this sense is with a lowercase c, right? Distinct from the universal body of Christ, the church. While there's only one big C church, universal, there are thousands of these smaller local churches, right? They're all over the place, and they have been uh, throughout history. So let's look to the New Testament for some examples of where we see these local churches coming about. The first place, and this is just going to be kind of a survey. You don't need to be like flipping around with me here. Uh, The first place would be the book of Acts. So the book of Acts records what Jesus' apostles did, their ministry, as soon as Jesus had ascended back into heaven, sent them the Holy Spirit, and then off they went. And the book of Acts records their ministry. And the entire ministry, by the way, of the apostle Paul, probably largely of Peter and some of the other apostles, was essentially planting local churches, going to a town and evangelizing, that is sharing the gospel until people came to faith in Christ, and then establishing a local church from those believers. That's what Paul did over and over. And then all these letters that you have from him in the rest of the New Testament are letters that he's sending to the churches that he planted, Okay, so he plants a church, he goes on to another town, and then he'll write back to that church about things going on there, about kind of further instructions, about how to carry out their faith. And so the book of Acts is really a 
it's a story of local church development and, and church planting movement. So Paul writes to a church in Corinth. You've got two letters to, to the Corinthians from Paul, and in both of them, he addresses them to, quote, to the church of God that is in Corinth. All right, so he's not talking to all Christians everywhere. He's talking to the Christians who are organized into a church in the city of Corinth. Apparently, there was only one church at that time in Corinth, this Greek city. So to the church of God that is in Corinth. He wrote to the Galatians and addressed that to the churches of Galatia. So apparently, there's more than one local church in Galatia. That was a plural, all right? So again, if he could have just said, if he meant to just imply every Christian that's in Galatia, he would have said to the church or to the Christians in Galatia. But he says to the churches. So there's more than one local church in the town of Galatia, apparently. In First and Second Thessalonians, that's hard to say. In First and Second Thessalonians, he addressed the church of the Thessalonians. So the Thessalonian people apparently have organized a church, a local church. The last book in the New Testament, Revelation, begins with Jesus himself through the Apostle John sending a message to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's the phrase in chapter 1, verse 4. To the seven churches that are in Asia. And then he lists these seven cities. To Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So, to the churches in these seven cities. Seven churches, seven cities. Again, so the Christians, the, lo- the global body of Christ, have organized themselves into local assemblies, local churches in each place. And in some cases, at least in the case of Galatia, more than one church in one place. All right? And the New Testament letters, by the way, that don't list this particular church as the recipient are either written to individuals, like Paul's letters to Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, or they were almost certainly written with the intention of being passed around among the various churches in the region to which it was sent. And if you think about it, even the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, implies the formation of local churches. Jesus' marching orders to the apostles, and by extension to all Christians, are go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It wouldn't have been enough for the apostles to go into a town, share the gospel with someone, lead them to faith in Christ, and then go, good luck, I hope your new life in Christ works out okay, and then go somewhere else. There had to be, uh, they had to baptize them, and they had to teach them. He says, teach them all that I have commanded. Like, that takes some time. That's not a conversation over lunch, right? So there's, there's a context where this baptizing and teaching would have to happen. And I submit to you that the local church is the context where the baptizing and discipling would happen. So if Jesus intended for his disciples to make disciples, then I think he intended the local church to be the context of that disciple-making. And that's what you see happening in the rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts and all the letters that we have uh, demonstrate that the local church are where this disciple-making is going on. So this is why the local church 
is the hope of the world. That's why Bill Hybels can say something as audacious as that. The local church is the hope of the world. Jesus carries out his work in the world through the church, and more specifically, through local churches, through local individual expressions of the body of Christ in different places. Jesus carries out his work in the world, his work of announcing the kingdom, his work of inviting people into the family of God, his work of baptizing and discipling and teaching, all of that, the work of Jesus happens in the context of the local church. Jesus displays his glory and his grace to the unbelieving world through the love and life of the local church. So maybe you've never thought that highly of your local church involvement before, but it really is the center of God's redemptive mission in the world. The local church, these individual places, these individual assemblies of believers, these disciple-making contexts, are where God is carrying out his redemptive work in the world. So these individual churches essentially are local expressions of the body of Christ. So what's true of the whole body of Christ is basically true of a local church, just in a small, on a smaller scale, right? So kind of in miniature. Um, so it's made up of people who have been redeemed by faith in Christ and who have a relationship with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and placing their faith in him. Same thing is true in a local church. The mission is the very same. Jesus gave this mission to his one church to go and make disciples, and the local church has the very same mission, to multiply disciples. That's what we're about. That's what each local church ought to be about. So it's clear that Christians in the New, in the New Testament organize themselves into these local congregations, based at least on geography. And this organizing has, has continued down through the centuries into our own day. Now, I realize that the the, the the vision of the, li- the local church that I'm talking about is distinct from uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church, where there is at least an attempt at a universal organizing principle. Um, and the way that, that I read the New Testament, I see these local expressions of the body of Christ being basically autonomous, that means self-governing bodies. We'll talk more about that as we get into this series. Um, but the question... The question we've got to ask today is, what makes a church a church? So what makes a local church a church? How did these local churches come into existence? So when Paul entered a town, for example, with the goal of planting a church, what did he do? What did he envision as the end goal of his church planting ministry? How did he know, I have accomplished the planting of a church and now I can move on to another town? Because that's what Paul did. He would start a church and leave. By the way, that's not my plan. I'm a pastor at heart, so my hope, if God allows it, is to plant imprint and then pastor it as long as he'll let me, all right? So I'm not Paul in any way. Um, But that was Paul's goal. Go to a town, plant a church, go to a new town. So how did he know when he'd accomplished the goal? Okay, we have a church. What is it that that organizing principles that, that made a church a church? And these kind of questions are essential for us to answer because they have immediate impact on us as we seek to plant imprints and what exactly that means. And in fact, I've been involved now for two years in the work of church planting and in network 
meetings and trainings and read tons of books and things on church planting. And I think this question is maybe the least asked and answered question about church planting among any of the training resources I've had. Almost nobody asks the question, what exactly is a church? So if you're going to plant a church, what exactly does that mean? Everybody talks about finding a model of church or finding a way to gather people and like, you know, how are you going to attract people to come to you or whatever. And then, you know, maybe that gets enough momentum and enough people and enough money that it can kind of continue, right? But the basic question, this, this biblical question of what makes a church a church, there's almost nobody writing about that or talking about that, except, by the way, for guys like Mark Dever, which is why I value their ministry so much. It's been extremely helpful to me to figure out, okay, what exactly is my goal in church planting? Um, because some might think what we did in March was planting a church. What we did was started holding a public worship gathering, which is good. I love it. I'm glad we're doing this. I think a public worship gathering is one of the central marks of a church. But is that it? Is a public worship gathering equal a church? So you've got to ask these questions. What makes a church a church? I like the definition that uh, J.D. Payne proposes uh, in his book, Apostolic Church Planting. Here's how he defines it. The local church is the local expression of the universal body of Christ. The church comes into existence when people repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus, are baptized, and agree to unite together, that is, self-identify as followers of Jesus in community with one another as a local expression of his body. And in that definition, there are three elements, three building blocks, if you will, of a church. Christians, baptism, and covenant. Those are the three kind of marks that we're going to follow through this definition today. So Christians, baptism, and covenant. Let's, let's take these one at a time. So the first thing to note about what makes a church a church is that it is composed of Christians. It is composed of people who have consciously placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation for the forgiveness of their sins, and for eternal life. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and then he's, I'm going to skip down to verses 9 and 10 after that. 1 Peter 2, verse 4, says this, As you come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then skipping down to verse 9, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the people that comprise the church are those who have come to Christ. They're being built up into a spiritual house. They are those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that is a description of salvation. It's similar to uh, Paul saying in Colossians that those who trusted in Christ have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. Matthew 28, to go back to the Great Commission, 
sees the local church as the home of new disciples who have been baptized and are being taught to obey Jesus' commands. Clearly, those are Christians who have heard the gospel, have been baptized, and are following uh, in the, the, the footsteps and the commands of Christ. The local church is the home of those people. So the point here is that we got to do all that we can as a local church to guard the integrity of the church's identity, of the church's Christian identity, so that our testimony to the gospel will be credible. Because if God's doing his redeeming work through the local church, he is displaying his character and his glory through the church. And if he's going to do that, then the church has to be pure. The church has to be born-again people following Jesus, right? The church has to guard this Christian uh, identity. Joshua Harris said, if Christ did not bring new life, excuse me, if Christ did bring new life, as he said, Christians should be living differently than non-Christians. Of course, we don't always do this perfectly, but we should do everything possible to keep our light shining brightly in a dark world, on display for all to see. Part of the local church's job is to distinguish those who believe from those who don't, to show what it means to truly follow Christ. So a local church maintains a Christian identity and is responsible for ensuring that its members are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. The second mark that we see from J.D. Payne's definition of when a church comes into existence is that those Christians have been baptized. Now here it's probably a good place to note uh, that the church that we're planting is a Southern Baptist church. And so our vision, our view of baptism and its role in a church's membership is distinct from Christian traditions that, uh, that, that perform infant baptism. So Presbyterians, Methodists, certainly Catholics, and things like that. This will make us distinct from those those traditions and from those churches. Don't hear me say that I think those churches are not real churches. So when I say that baptism is required mark of the church, I'm not implying that Presbyterian churches aren't real churches. So it would probably be good to use the disclaimer here, what makes a Baptist church a Baptist church is that its members are Christians and have been baptized as Christians, all right? So I do think that's an important distinction to make, because as I read the New Testament, as Baptists historically have read the New Testament, we see people come to faith in Christ and get baptized upon that profession of faith in Christ. And so we believe that it has a fundamental role in the marking off of a believer as a follower of Jesus. So we've already mentioned the role of baptism in the Great Commission, right? Jesus said, go and do what? Make disciples, go and do what to them? Baptize them, all right? So once you've made the disciple, baptize the disciple and then teach the disciple. Um, but consider the book of Acts, chapter 2. This is Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes to the apostles for the first time. The Holy Spirit comes, there's this loud sound, there's these little fires that seem to be floating on the heads of the apostles, and they start like proclaiming the works of God, and people nearby are hearing it in their own language, different languages. So there's clearly this miraculous move of the Spirit where there's I don't know if they're speaking other languages or it actually says that they were hearing it in their own language. But at any rate, there's a communication miracle going on where the Holy Spirit has come. And some of the people watching go, I think these people are drunk. And Peter stands up and he says, nope, we're not drunk, as you suppose. And then he just preaches Christ. He preaches about the crucified Messiah. And he's preaching to a Jewish audience here. And he says, 
Jesus came as your Messiah and you killed him. You nailed him to a cross. And it tells us that they were pierced to the heart when they heard this message. And they basically said, so what should we do, right? We've killed our Messiah, what do we do? So in chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Down in verse 41, he says, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Jesus seemed to assume that when we're making disciples, we're going to baptize them. And the context of the baptism and the teaching ministry would be in the local church. And then Peter, the very first sermon in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit shows up for the first time, preaches the gospel. And they say, what do we do? He says, believe and be baptized. And so we see a close connection between the conversion of a person from unbelief to Christ and baptism as the public proclamation of that conversion. Bobby Jamieson says, to turn to Jesus in faith and baptism is to identify yourself with him and his followers and to distance yourself from those who reject him. You're being called to a public decision to follow Christ, and that decision is sealed publicly in baptism. Baptism is how you go public with your newfound faith in Christ. And indeed, that quote comes from his book called Going Public which is about why baptism is a mark of church membership. So, a local church comes into existence when you have a group of believers, people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've been baptized as a, upon their profession of faith as a public statement about that uh, faith, that conversion. And then finally, covenant. They have covenanted together. Uh, in Matthew 18, and this is a kind of a crazy passage of Scripture. We'll, we'll come back to it in later weeks uh, in this message, uh, in this series. So we can't spend a whole bunch of time there right now. But I do want to, to read a couple of verses to you. So in Matthew 18, Jesus is giving instructions on how the church should handle a person who's in sin, a member who's in sin. And he actually uses the word church here, one of only two times that Jesus uses the word church. And he uses it in this context. So he says, if, if a brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault, right? Confront him. If he doesn't repent, then go back to him with two or three witnesses, basically confronting him now with a couple more people saying, yeah, we think that you're in sin. If he doesn't repent, then, then he says, tell it to the church. And if he won't even listen to the church, like when the whole assembly, the whole church is coming to this brother and saying, we think you're in sin and you need to repent. If he still says, I will not do it. I don't think I'm in sin. I think you're wrong, whatever. If he doesn't listen, look at verse, uh, listen to verse 18. Verses 18 down through 20. Excuse me, actually verse 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now he's speaking to Jews, so a Gentile meant not part of the family. Tax collector meant probably not saved, right? Because they were despised and they were probably crooked and stealing money, right? So if they won't even listen to the whole church saying you need to repent, then you should regard him as not one of you. That's what Jesus says. Again, we'll spend some time on this later. But then he says in verse 18, 20, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. 
For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So he seems to be saying that if the church, the people of God, collectively decide, I don't think this person is really a believer because he's, not, he's refusing to repent of his sin and not acting like a believer, so we're going to count him outside of the church, he basically says, heaven agrees with you. Whatever you bind on earth, bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, loosed in heaven. On what principle? On the principle of two or three in agreement. Where there are two or three in agreement and gathered in my name, you got it. I'm with you. I'm there with you. I agree with you. That's what Jesus is saying. And so this two or three gathered and in agreement, I think, is an expression of this covenant reality of the local church. They are in agreement about the gospel. They're in agreement about the identity of the church as the people of God. They're in agreement about this particular brother not really living out the faith of Christ and no longer being regarded as one of them. So let's talk about some hypotheticals. A group of Christian friends meet up at Dunkin' Donuts for coffee. Are they a church? They're Christians. They're in the same place having coffee together. Does that make them a church? Let's say a Christian goes to Wise to do grocery shopping for the week and bumps into somebody that she recognizes. They stop in the aisle and talk for a couple of minutes, and in the course of conversation, they realize, oh, we're both Christians. You're a Christian too? That's great. I'm a Christian. Are they a church now? Because they're believers assembled in the same place? There's two. Jesus said two or three, right? Does that make them a church? I think you probably instinctively would say no, but you might not be sure why. I don't think that's a church, but what is it that makes it not a church? I would propose that the most immediate way that you know these sort of ad hoc get-togethers don't comprise a New Testament local church is that they have not agreed to be a church. I think it comes down to that covenant. It comes down to that, uh, that willingness to self-identify as an organized body of believers. When you bump into a Christian at Wise, you haven't agreed to self-identify as a church. You're just friends that are shopping and talking for a minute or at the coffee shop, right? Otherwise, you'd have churches forming and disbanding every time Christians went to a coffee shop or bumped into someone at the grocery store. If church planting were that easy, man, I can't tell you how many churches I planted in Maryland. Right? Every time I bump into a Christian, there's a church. I already planted a church and disbanded it. It didn't work out. So I think we, we, we instinctively, intuitively kind of get, yeah, that's not a church. But I think the, the fundamental... Uh, principle that guides the decision as to whether or not that's a church is the agreement, the covenant, the people saying we agree to self-identify as a body of Christ and to live out our faith in covenant with one another. Think about the one another's in the New Testament. There's commands all throughout the New Testament uh, to live out our life with others in such a way. Here's just a sampling of them. Love one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, serve one another, Carry one another's burdens, forgive one another, encourage one another, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another. With whom exactly are Christians intended to carry out all these one another instructions? With every Christian they ever meet? If I bump into somebody at Wise and find out that they're a Christian, should I start confessing my sins to them? Oh, I'm commanded to confess my sins to one another, so let me tell you about some things going on in my life. Who exactly are we called to live these things out with together? How about as a pastor? The Bible says that pastors will give an account for those in their flock. Well, how do I know who's in my flock? 
Is it everyone who's ever come into a worship service? Is it any Christian that I've ever met in Maryland? Am I accountable for all of them? So the organizing principle around which the church is defined is that Christians, they've been baptized as a profession of their faith, and they have agreed to live together as a local church. J.D. Payne says, it is impossible to carry out total obedience to Jesus without a commitment to a local expression of his body. So Jesus founded the church. Jesus commissioned the church. Jesus carries out his work in the world through the church. Where does that leave us? Right? Where does that leave this gathering of people who are spending several hours on a Sunday morning setting up screens and signs and nursery and speakers and worshiping God together, even meeting in home groups, you know, during the week. Where does this leave us? So let's use those three marks, Christian, baptism, covenant. First, trust in Christ for salvation, if you haven't. If you are not in Christ, if you have not made the the conscious decision to rest your life and your eternity upon the finished work of Jesus for salvation, do it. Don't do it for imprint. Don't do it because you want to be a member of the church. Do it because God is calling to you. And he says, if today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, right? That's the warning in the book of Hebrews. So trust in Christ for salvation. Examine yourself and be sure that you are in the faith. Second, be baptized as a profession of that faith. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, be baptized as a profession of faith. We can help you with that. Third, prepare to covenant with us on November 5th. And the way to do that is the pathway that I've already kind of laid out to you. A membership application, which is at that table. A membership interview with me and Lindsay. Signing of the covenant. And then that formal uh, covenant ceremony on November 5th. Um, so I think that's a good, a clear pathway for us just in these next few weeks. Well, I'm over my time, but I do want to finish with this uh, quote. Uh, and it's a rather lengthy quote, but it's so, so good. Uh, by Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in London in the 19th century. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would have not been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on the earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone. And then the testimony for God would be lost to the world. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it if you are the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family.